You're listening to Language Nerds to Earth, a podcast about linguistics, culture, travel, and how they're all connected. Now it's time to meet your language nerd hosts. One in China, one in Spain. It's Patrice and Rachel. Hello, everyone. I'm Patrice. And I'm Rachel. And this is Language Nerds to Earth. We are on episode 54. Yes. And we are very excited because today we are talking about something we all know, probably, if you're a human on this planet, which is dragons. <laughs> yeah, all of us know dragons, and I've always found it really interesting that pretty much every culture in the world has dragons, and so we thought we should definitely do an episode on it. Mm-hmm. But before we get into it, uh, we of course have language news, yes. and this language news is for the archaeologists out there and the scientists who are also language fans. Mm-hmm. So they've done some research that studies DNA of people from Central Europe and Western Asia, and they have found that people who speak Indo-European languages have more genetic similarities than people who maybe live in the same region but speak a language with a different of a different family. Yeah. Which is really cool that they were able to track this. So how did they, how do they know? A team of geneticists, archaeologists and anthropologists analyzed the genomes of 524 individuals from Central and South Asia. And actually, that increased the worldwide total of published ancient genomes by about 25%. So this was a huge study. Mm -hmm. It was a really big deal. And they found that Indo-European languages, which includes Hindi, Urdu, Farsi, Russian, English, French, Gaelic, and more than 400 more, arrived in Europe via the steppes. And despite being spread over a vast area, they actually share a lot of similarities in syntax, numbers, basic adjectives, and a lot of nouns related to kin and body parts and more. I mean, you think about like one, two, three, uno, dos, tres, Eins, zwei, drei. Even though it's not totally the same in so many languages, there are really interesting similarities mm-hmm. among those things. So basically, they have found that there are genetic similarities between Indo-Iranian and Balto-Slavic branches of Indo-European. So those maybe aren't typically the ones that we would think are the most similar. But that means that these present-day speakers come from this subgroup of steppe herders that moved toward Europe 5,000 years ago, and then they spread back to Central and South Asia in the following um, 1,500 years or so. And so that's one piece of evidence that supports the argument that these people who speak Indo-European languages come from a sim- from a general ancestry. Mm-hmm. And the other piece of evidence they saw was that South Asians who today speak Dravidian languages, which is in southern India and southwest Pakistan, had very little of the DNA that they were looking at compared to those who speak Indo-European languages. 
Why is this so hard? I don't know. It's complicated. Yeah. 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 But you get the idea. So the main point is that speakers of Indo-European languages share common DNA. And that's because they come from the same people who spoke one language. Now, what did that language sound like? I don't think we're going to find out unless somebody finally gives us the blueprint for a time machine. (laughs) But so far, we don't have it. (laughs) But the Indo-European languages probably stemmed from that language. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Really cool. Now I think it's time for us to move on to our main topic, which is dragons. Mm. Yes, that's much easier for me to talk about also. (laughs) (laughs) I struggle with that a a little bit too. With, I struggle with legends yeah. always in mythology, but it's very confusing. Oh, me. yeah, well, I'm not a good storyteller, but I <laughs> think I can tell stories better than I can explain archaeological evidence and genetic <laughs> evidence. Yeah. Yeah, so let's talk about dragons. First of all, before we start, the word for dragon is really similar in a lot of languages. We have... Dragon, obviously. Dutch is drak. Bulgarian drakon. Mm-hmm. Norsk drake. Norwegian drage. Latin draco. German drache. So this tells me that the concept of dragon is really old. Mm-hmm. If it's this similar in so many different languages. so And probably it's passed around a lot during storytelling or interactions between different peoples who are neighbors or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Exactly. Also, it's very similar among Korean and Chinese and Vietnamese, and Korea and Vietnam are two heavily influenced cultures by China, as well as Japanese a little bit. So China, we've got Long uh, in Korean, Yong. In Vietnamese, Rong, Japanese, Ryu. So now we have that. It's also worth it to examine a little bit about why we have these dragon legends. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm pretty sure it's not because there was an actual animal that um, breathed fire from its mouth, <laughs> as cool as that would be. And, like, a small part of me wants to believe that. Yeah, in the ancient days, they really existed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So why is that? Well, I think that my favorite reason or my favorite theory that I find really compelling is a theory that early primates and early humans had basically three main enemies, um, snakes, large cats, and birds of prey. And so the dragon legend incorporates all of these together and makes for this terrifying embodiment of all that is dangerous to us. So it has like this innate fear that we have of it. So people, by learning these stories or learning about this myth, they could be more likely to survive because they would take that fear with them to be scared of snakes and their real-life enemies, basically. Mm, I really like that. And then, kind of building on that, one of the things I was reading about this 
about dragons was talking about how today when we tell stories we try to keep it as close to the truth as we can so we do a lot of fact checking and we Mm -hmm. want to make sure that we get it right when we tell a story but in the ancient world it was totally opposite so whenever you told a story you played to your audience to make something like more fantastical and everything was an oral tradition as well so that kind of shows you that like there wasn't really uh, a place where they could go check like let me go check these carved paintings and make sure that org was saying this when he was trying to tell the story right org is the caveman name that i came up with on the spot which i'm not sure that that's a common caveman name but (laughs) but anyway over time i think aren't they named like fred and (laughs) things like that well mine's (laughs) name is org so (laughs) when people were telling the stories of these fantastical creatures it got more and more exaggerated over time it was probably like a, a favorite, just because it's such a such a cool concept. Still to this day, mm-hmm. dragons are cool concepts. Yeah, and there's another theory as well, which is as people f- slowly dug up dinosaur bones, these large sort of unexplained creatures, they came up with their own story about what that was. Mm-hmm. But to me, that doesn't really explain like why dragons would be so similar everywhere. Because mm. they could come up with different, like, appearances. I mean, they do look different, but they have a lot of things in common. I think it's it basically, like, it's a combination of all these things. People innately feared snakes and birds and large cats. And then also, like, stories were told over and over like this. And then... Uh, and they got more exaggerated. And then they found these bones, and they were like, see, it was real, you know? Mm-hmm. I imagine. Yeah, maybe. It also, it could have been, like, people saw, um, like, a Komodo dragon or an alligator in one place, and then spread that tale. I mean, that those are all, I think these are all probably complementary theories. I mean, we'll never know. Again, unless we invent a time machine. But until then, I like these theories. I think it's really it's really cool to see how they could probably have played off of each other. Yeah, totally. So should we talk about, for just a moment, the sort of difference between Eastern and Western dragons? Yeah, definitely. So, in the Western tradition, the dragon is perceived as a violent beast that needs to be either tamed or slain, usually, um, mm-hmm. that terrorizes villagers and wreaks havoc. And so um, man needs to conquer him. Mm-hmm. And what I've read is that this largely comes out of this myth of uh, St. George and the dragon, which St. George lived in, like, 3rd century, and this legend was attributed to him much later, uh, I think around the time of the Crusades or so. And so in the legend, there was a dragon that was keeping a town captive and he demanded human sacrifices. I read somewhere he also demanded virgins. And then at some point there was only one left who was 
the princess, and then St. George came in with lots of valor, and he, he slayed the dragon, slayed the dragon, it's not a word I use every day, <laughs> and he killed, he killed the dragon, and he freed the villagers, and for this act, he asked that everyone convert to Christianity. So yeah, this is wrapped up with Christianity and then chivalry and all of these sort of middle ages ideas about romance. And that I think has really stayed for a long time. Mm. But yeah, I think the first version of the story was found in Georgia. So it's been morphed and adapted, but eventually it was St. George who was attributed with it. Hmm. Yeah, so I guess we could say that Western dragons are, like you said, something to be to be tamed or slayed and something that you stand up to, right? And that's mm-hmm. feared and all-powerful. And when you look at Eastern dragons then... They're not necessarily feared, mm-hmm. and they're definitely not something that you would look at as something that needs to be tamed. So in the East, especially China, because that's like a huge dragon culture, dragons are a symbol of power and good fortune, but only good fortune to those who are worthy. The dragon fosters harmony. And it's connected to the Chinese emperor, so obviously a symbol of power, just like in the West. It's also the bringer of rain. So dragons were believed to be the bringer of rain, which is obviously really important to the survival of the community. And like I said, initially it was benevolent and wise and just, but Buddhists actually introduced the concept of a malevolent influence among some dragons. So just like water destroys, they said, dragons can destroy with floods or tidal waves or storms. And they suggested that some of the worst floods were believed to have been the result of a mortal upsetting a dragon. Mm. And then droughts were blamed on lazy dragons. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) So yeah, it's... I feel like they're equal in symbolism Mm -hmm. and i think it was also dragons were used as a way to describe events that that predated the science Mm -hmm. if that makes sense and beyond their control as well and that's always easier when there's if you can explain it like oh someone was upset so exactly but i like i like the difference i feel like one thing that it kind of shows is the difference in the way authority is looked at in the East and the West. Say more about that. Like, China is an authoritarian country, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there's a lot of respect for authority in East Asia. The way the coronavirus was dealt with here and is being dealt with is when the authorities say, you don't go outside, nobody goes outside and everything closes and there's very little challenging of authority. You can see that in businesses and schools, definitely in schools. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas I feel like in the West, it's a much different 
attitude toward authority. So, whereas in the East, the the dragon is like a strong figure that needs to be respected. In the East, the dragon is a figure that um, is powerful, and um, people stand up to it. You know. Mm, so that's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about it the other day. I think it's really like you think about the way the coronavirus is being dealt with in the U.S. Like people are being told to stay indoors and they're not doing it. They're like, just because you told me to doesn't mean I have to, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, Wait, just a quick aside. Have you seen the Italian mayors like going out and screaming at people who aren't following the orders. Yeah, actually, um, one of them is the mayor of a city that one of my co-workers is from. Oh my and God. he posted it, yeah. He was like, this is the mayor of my town. And he was, I mean, it's good. <laughs> I think that's great. I mean, yeah, it, but people could just stay inside and not yeah make the mayor it yell at them i know <laughs> anyhow yeah okay so, so let's get into some specifics then yes you want to go first sure okay so i will start with a european dragon which is the i'm not going to attempt the welsh but it's the welsh dragon mm. um <laughs> the red dragon is called yeah. Um, which is a really old tradition, as most dragons, I think, are. But it has a lot of symbolism as well. So the red dragon is seen as the noble and selfless defender of all Britons, which kind of breaks the stereotype we just talked about, that the dragon is supposed to be killed. But it actually is the representation of the Welsh people, of the Britons, who are now the Welsh. And in 73 BC, this one I think is super interesting. The red dragon has this horrible fight with the white dragon, and they are fighting and fighting. And I think from one story I heard, it went on for days or maybe even longer. And during this time, all of this crazy stuff happened. The cattle lost their milk, women mm. miscarried, and eventually King Lud trapped the fighting dragons in a pit full of mead. Huh. And since then, it has transformed a lot. Many different battles and invasions. Uh, the red dragon is the protector a lot of times, and that's why it's actually on the Welsh flag. It's a green and white background with a red dragon on it. Hmm. And so the white dragon, I think, represented the Saxons when they invaded, and the red dragon, the Britons, the Welsh. So I think that one's very interesting because it's actually still quite relevant mm -hmm. since it's even on their political symbol and yeah, in their national identity. Yeah, that is really interesting. I wonder how many Welsh people know the story of the dragon. I feel like a, probably most. Um, maybe there are a lot they of different must. versions and maybe different stories, but 
If you are Welsh, let us know. <laughs> yeah, we would love to know. Also, it's hard for me to follow all the various iterations of it. So if you have something more specific, that would be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there is also a Welsh poem from the 1400s, which the well-known line is the red dragon advances and it's referring to a campaign against edward the fourth by jasper Mm. so basically marching into battle or marching into an attack their red dragon is there do you want to read it yeah and the welsh flag is apparently one of the oldest flags in the world And the oldest in Europe. That's really cool. So, head that slain made for fearful unhateful, head that slain made surrender best, head of a soldier, head of praise, head of a duke, a dragon's head he had. Mm. So. Cool. I really like that it's on the flag and it's still relevant today. Yeah, I would love to hear from anybody who's Welsh and listening to this. If you have anything to add to what Rachel said, it'd be awesome. Mm-hmm. So I decided to be super cliche and go with the Chinese dragon, but I feel like it is really important in dragon culture and history in general. So it's totally essential. I mean, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I knew you were gonna do it. That's why I didn't research it. <laughs> yeah. You were right. That would be so lame if neither of us had done it, so I did it. (sighs) Like I said, dragons were a symbol of power and good fortune. They were usually depicted as a wingless snake with four legs and the face of a dog. And actually, if you look at the Chinese zodiac, it's said that Chinese dragons are a combination of all of the animals of the zodiac. And I don't remember what all of them were, but the dog is the face of the dragon. So that's kind of why it doesn't, dragon faces don't look very reptilian in Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen like a dragon dance or a video of a dragon dance, it's really cool. It's a very, very long dragon that it takes lots of people to hold up. It's basically like a puppet, I guess you you could say. But the dragon face looks like a dog. So dragon dances are performed every year during Chinese New Year. And because dragons bring good luck to people, the longer the dragon is in the dance, the more luck it will bring to the community. Also, because dragons are such a big part of Chinese culture, some Chinese people claim to be the descendants of dragons. Mm. So they say, that means a person of a dragon, basically. They also have a few other proverbs. Means hoping that my son will become a dragon because excellent and outstanding people are compared to dragons, while incapable people with no achievements are compared to other disesteemed creatures such as a worm, which I really like. <laughs> Another thing, like we talked a little bit about the history of dragons, ancient Chinese doctors would find dinosaur bones and say they were dragon bones, and then grind them up and use them for medicine. So Mm. it's safe to say that 
dragons are really important in Chinese culture, and they also used to be on flags in China. A few different flags, including the Hong Kong flag before it was. So when Hong Kong was occupied by Britain, on the flag was a dragon and lion, and the UK symbol. Interesting. Okay, your turn. What else did you look at? Okay, so the next one is a dragon from Ghana. I've also read that it came from a couple of neighboring countries, but basically the kingdom of Ghana. And his name is Mbida. And there are several different versions of this story, but basically he was a dragon who required a human sacrifice of a virgin. Again with the virgins, really. Again with the virgins, I mean... But there are a couple versions. So in one version, he is the protector of the city, and as his price, he requires the sacrifice of a virgin. Okay. In another story, the son of the fallen king, to get the secrets of being the king, he has to enter this city that comes up out of the sand in the desert called Wagadu, and... In order to gain access to the city, he makes this deal that one version will be killed every year. And this went on for several generations until there was one girl chosen. I think her name was Sia. So in the version where he went into this city out of the sand, her fiancé went and killed the dragon. And normally the dragon would uh, spit out gold all over the city. That would be how he sort of protected it. And hmm. when the dragon was killed, his head was cut off and it landed, I guess, on the coast or something. And that's why it's called the Gold Coast. And there is a lot of gold there. Hmm. In the other version, this girl's fiancé killed the dragon. But without the protection of the dragon, the city had a drought and it was basically the end of the kingdom of Ghana. Hmm. Well, I think I like the first one more. (laughs) Yeah, kind of different versions, but it shows you that a lot is explained by a dragon and Mm -hmm. hardship or the opposite. Exactly, yeah. That's really cool. I had no idea that there were dragons in Africa, but I also found one in Egypt. So, I mean, it makes sense. The oldest. Yeah. Uh, From what I read, I think the Egyptian is the oldest dragon story. Oh, in the world. 4,000 BC. Mm -hmm. Right. And I actually did learn about it when I was in Egypt over the holiday. But alas, we're not going to talk about the one in Egypt. You can go look it up. (laughs) <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Quetzalcoatl, which you're like, wait a second, Patrice. Quetzalcoatl is not a dragon, but it is. It's included in a lot of references to dragons. So what was Quetzalcoatl? The Aztecs revered Quetzalcoatl, and also the Mayans did as well. They called him by another name, but it seems to be the same deity. And actually, the Aztecs also got the idea of Quetzalcoatl, it's suggested, from the Olmec population that predated them. So Quetzalcoatl comes from two words, Quetzal, which is the name of the bird that its tail feather resembled, and Quetzalcoatl, which is snake. So the translation of Quetzalcoatl is feathered serpent. And the feathers on Quetzalcoatl were actually like 
if you look at depictions of him, uh, are, are beautiful, like beautiful rainbow feathers, which is interesting because none of the other dragons we've talked about, I think, had feathers. But on the other hand, now they're saying that dinosaurs probably had feathers. So the Aztecs might have been like the closest thing to... They might have been the most right about what a dragon would have looked like if it was a dinosaur. So anyway, Quetzalcoatl was a deity originally associated with rain and the wind and vegetation. And the main temple of Teotihuacan, built between 400 BC and 600 AD, was in Quetzalcoatl's honor. And he was really important for agriculture. Eventually... Quetzalcoatl just kind of became like the creator of mankind and was considered to be different, a god of different things depending on where you went in the Aztec Empire. He was the founder of corn. The myth is that he and the other gods created man and he saw an ant carrying a grain of corn and that's how he knew that this race was going to use corn as their main sustenance. And it, I think, like, he also can take a lot of different forms, but the main one is, is this feathered serpent. So I really like that. Yeah. Do you have any other favorite dragon stories or maybe dragons in pop culture or your favorite depiction of a dragon? Let us know. Yes. Um, we would love to hear some more legends and other traditions of dragons. There's so many. It's a really interesting topic, I think. I know. And it's so hard to cover so many because they're all like so specific to where they're from, you know, and mm -hmm. you, it's very easy to get lost in the details. So that's why we try to not do too many, I think. Yeah. Exactly. And they're all their own rich traditions, so. Totally, yeah. So, we don't have a Lost in Translation today, so make sure you send it to us so that we can have one on the next episode. You know how to do it. Go to our website, check out the uh, Lost in Translation and contact section, and you can record your voice, or just send it to us via email to earth at gmail.com. And subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, and that way you make sure to get them as soon as they're released. Follow us on social media to connect with us. Um, our most active stuff is on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And please leave us a review on iTunes. We say it every time. And if you enjoyed this episode, make sure and tell your friends about it. And our next episode will be about not traveling, because you shouldn't be traveling right now. Yep. So we'll try to also include some resources that maybe could be like virtual travel. So experiencing some things uh, from your own home. Okay, everybody. Have a great week. See you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.